This is an ABC podcast. Hello, Tom Switzer here and welcome to Between the Lines. Well, another bad week for Sino-Australian ties. Indeed, relations between Canberra and Beijing have plunged to their worst state in arguably half a century. Now, this is after two Australian journalists fled and a third was charged with endangering security. To say China is a nation pumped up on nationalism, well, that's an understatement, isn't it? Later on, we'll delve into Chinese nationalism and find out how World War II helps shape the national psychology on mainland China. But first, intelligence. Well, you'd have to be living under a rock not to notice that Australia is in a radically different security environment than it was just two years ago. The Prime Minister, he's likened the situation to the 1930s. And in the last six months, we've seen a massive increase to the budgets for defence and our intelligence agencies. Now, the external threats are undeniable. You just think of the rising power of China. But are we at risk of undermining our political freedoms by expanding the powers of security agencies too much? How big and powerful should we let our security agencies get? And what kind of oversight exists to ensure that the intelligence is not collected or used for political purposes? What do you think? Well, Peter Redwoods is the former official historian and the author of several award-winning books. His most recent one is called Law, Politics and Intelligence, A Life of Robert Hope. Welcome back to the show, Peter. Thanks very much, Tom. Thanks for having me. And Jacinta Carroll, she's a visiting fellow and senior research fellow at the National Security College at ANU. Good to be with you again, Jacinta. Great to be back. Thanks, Tom. Now, let's start with the HOPE commissions in the 70s and 80s. Peter, this is your thesis. Take us back to that time. Why are those commissions so important? Well, between the mid-70s and the mid-80s, over a 10-year period, uh, three successive prime ministers, Whitlam, Fraser and Hawke, commissioned the same man, Justice Robert HOPE, to conduct major inquiries into the intelligence uh, agencies. Uh, What he set up was not just just an inquiry into an agency, uh, ASIO was the only declared one and quite controversial, but he set up a whole system uh, for the agencies, uh, setting out what what agencies Australia needed, what each one should do and what it should not do, how they should interact with each other, how they should interact with departments, with individual ministers, with the cabinet uh, and cabinet committees, and with the international partners, uh, those we now know as Five Eyes. And he emphasised a number of things. He particularly emphasised that the intelligence system should serve the whole of government and not be unduly influenced, uh, as it was when he started, by one or two very powerful departments. Uh, and towards that end, he said there should be a central coordinating agency which would only be involved with assessment, and he allocated collection assessment and dissemination to different agencies. Uh, this one would be only concerned with assessment, unlike the American CIA, and with its uh, the independence of its uh, assessments guaranteed by legislation Uh, to be independent from ministerial or departmental pressures. And he said a number of other things about the relationships between intelligence and law enforcement agencies. So keeping intelligence and policymaking separate, keeping intelligence and law enforcement uh, separate, 
were among uh, the, the basic principles. Okay, so that's the Robert Hope recommendations. Are they now under threat from a new model uh, that's been pushed by Michael Pizzullo? He's the Secretary of Home Affairs. I mean, is there a growing risk that intelligence will become more politicised? Well, what happened was in 2018, the then Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, made two announcements on the same day which I think pulled in different directions. One was accepting the uh, recommendations of a very good report by Michael Lestrange and Stephen Merchant, which, among many other things, said that that central agency should be upgraded to become the Office of National Intelligence with a a clearer and stronger role in coordinating uh, intelligence from all different agencies before it went to the, the, the policymakers. And that agency is under the ambit of the, uh, the portfolio of prime minister and cabinet, which symbolises it, its central role. But at the same time, they announced, and Lestrange and Merchant weren't aware of this, that this was coming, the creation of home affairs, which consolidated a large number of intelligence and security and law enforcement agencies, all under the one department, which cuts directly uh, against that uh, thrust of the, uh, of the HOPE uh, inquiries, that you shouldn't have one department so influential. So we now have what's called the National Intelligence Community, a, a total of 10 agencies. Five of them come under the portfolio of Home Affairs. And this blurs the lines, I think, between mm. intelligence and policy making it's not good for intelligence assessments to be unduly influenced by what they call the preordained policy priorities and preferences of one area of government. And that, I think, is precisely the danger that this the creation of home affairs is establishing within okay. the system. So Peter's not alone here, Jacinta. I mean, other scholars have said it's more difficult to ensure proper oversight with so many agencies under the home affairs uh, departmental structures. The question here is, Jacinta, is Home Affairs too big? Well, it certainly is a very large organisation and it's one of the largest in this new central agency portfolio. So the question really is, is the Home Affairs portfolio operating effectively and appropriately? And by appropriate, I mean in accordance with these foundation principles that Peter's touched upon that were established by Justice Hope and have really been uh, the guiding light for the role of intelligence and security in Australia as a liberal democracy. So these foundation principles put in place by HOPE and reinforced by a series of independent intelligence reviews, Peter's just mentioned the most recent in 2017, but they're very much focused on ensuring that we strike a balance between effective security, dealing with increasing threats and increasing diversity of threats, while also ensuring that this is clearly in the service of a liberal democracy that has human rights as its founding point. And that that balance typically isn't neat. It never is in any liberal democracy. It's always ongoing. So the, the sticky issue here, as Peter has mentioned, is that our most recent independent intelligence review, which is the long-term considered overall picture review, fairly regularly held every few years or so um, in the past past uh, 20 years, was the opportunity to look where our agencies had gone, where the threat had manifested and how to best organise these things in terms of dealing with the threat, having effective security and having a balance. And of course, that consideration didn't include 
this very significant new portfolio bringing in immigration, the AFP and ASIO in the portfolio. Peter, you heard Jacinta there. How would you respond to her argument? Yes, uh, the home affairs uh, idea was first mooted uh, back when Labor came in, uh, won the 2007 election, uh, with a proposal for uh, something that was then modelled on the American Department of Homeland Security. And that was put up Mm -hmm. to a report by Rick Smith, a highly respected public servant, former Secretary of Defence, among other things, uh, who said that this was not the model we should be following. What we really needed was to have these various agencies each developing a high level of skills in in their own respective areas and then being nimble enough and flexible enough to collaborate as necessary according to the demands of the time because the the way different agencies have to uh, collaborate, like the Border Force and uh, Police and ASIO and so forth, is different when you're dealing with terrorism, for example, uh, compared with when you're dealing with a pandemic. Home Affairs is supposedly modelled on the British Foreign Office. It's not really appropriate, I think, for the Australian uh, setting, and it cuts. A, it was actually recommended against by a, a well-worded, a well-argued independent report in 2008. Okay, but what about the Australian Signals Directorate? Uh, Jacinta, back in the old days, we used to talk mainly about ASIO, but these days everything happens online and the agency with the most rapidly growing powers is the ASD. And, of course, that was in the news a year or so ago when it landed the Canberra journalist Anika Smithhurst into hot water. Is ASD getting too powerful? Jacinta Carroll. Well, ASD, the Australian Signals Directorate, previously the Defence Signals Directorate, has um, a long history that starts obviously in the around the Second World War of being um, a code-breaking unit, much like we see in the British and the American experience. And that, of course, is very clear when you're at war, you have certain technical um, interceptions that need to be made, and that that's moved into ASD in more recent years being a foreign-focused signals intelligence service. And That's all very neat because, again, going back to the principles of Australia's security, there are different things that uh, the government can do in terms of foreigners than it can do uh, in in terms of its own citizens uh, where law enforcement is priority. What's happened recently is that the security threat and indeed other threats, criminal and others, are increasingly happening online and Mm. in the cyber environment Mm -hmm, in a way mm -hmm. that was never in the 70s and the 80s and when ASD's role became more public. So what's happened uh, in the last couple of years, again, since ASD has become a statutory authority, is that it has taken pragmatically a role to use its particular technical skills and capabilities to assist other agencies where needed. So, for example, to assist um, uh, cyber crime investigation across a whole range of crime types, um, including obviously um, scams um, as well as sexual exploitation online and others. And that that's a very pragmatic use of that capability. Again, the type of thing that was not only... Um, Uh, recommended by the Independent Intelligence Review, but a capability that Rick Smith and others, when they've considered how do we deal with all of these different agencies, envisaged um, as they've undertaken reports and reviews over the the past 20 years or so. So what's happening now is that ASD is coming firmly to the fore uh, in some proposed legislation that would allow it to be able to use its very intrusive and capable powers to assist other 
legal entities, um, so various police forces and, and um, criminal investigation units and others, uh, to, under warrant, undertake investigations to support them. So this is a good thing in that it's not expanding these cyber offensive and defensive capabilities into other agencies. But again, it's potentially using a very significant capability in areas that it hasn't been used before and including in the domestic environment. So as this evolves, we need to have a lot of scrutiny and oversight over the mechanisms under which this would be allowed. Final question to you, Jacinta, because you read every submission to the Parliamentary Press Freedom Inquiry. Are you confident that we have the balance between secrecy and transparency right? Look, it's an interesting question, Tom, and certainly before the the very high-profile search warrants execution, the raids on um, journalists and the ABC, I thought that the balance and the powers and also the very live mechanism that we have of review was sufficient. So the review mechanisms and oversight mechanisms include an Inspector General of Intelligence and Security, uh, Commonwealth and State Ombudsman for for non-intelligence agencies, an independent national security legislation monitor who who does exactly what the job says, can own motion, look at any laws of concerns or any cases of concern, and also a a very active uh, parliamentary joint committee on intelligence and security, as well as your normal things, courts, um, Senate committees, inquiries, and so on. However, what's happened through in um, in the aftermath of these raids is, of course, we had a very good very far-reaching press freedom inquiry by that parliamentary joint committee. It attracted a very high number of public submissions from individuals, but significantly from media organisations, media-focused legal areas, uh, human rights lawyers and others. And what I saw in those submissions, very well-meaning, was that there isn't a high level of understanding of how those oversight mechanisms work, um, how whistleblowers um, may raise concerns without uh, compromising security. And what I take from that isn't necessarily that the fault lies with um, those people who are making the submissions or those organisations. In a responsible government, which is the form of of liberal democracy we have, it is actually the the responsibility of government to... um, communicate and inform and educate the public about how powers are being used, particularly those that might affect individuals. It's quite difficult to navigate for the average punter uh, an understanding of what our laws are, uh, how this oversight and accountability is ensured. I work mostly work on the security side. I do understand the threats. I understand the complexity of issues that these agencies and the many public servants across the board, whether they be in uniform or not, whether they be at federal, state or working in industry, uh, but it is very important that as we deal with these threats and use very significant powers in doing so, that we always remember to be open to the people who are served by these officials and by governments. And I'm not sure we've got the balance right yet. That was Jacinta Carroll, Visiting Fellow and Senior Research Fellow at the National Security College at ANU. And Peter Edwards, he's the author of Law, Politics and Intelligence, A Life of Robert Hope. This is Between the Lines with Tom Switzer, making sense of Australia's place in the world. Well, we've recently marked the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II, an event which still shapes the world and how we in the West understand our role in it. But we rarely hear stories from one of the most important allied countries in the war. I'm talking about China. It's interesting, isn't it? 
Well, my next guest argues that in the last few decades, China has been revising the way World War II fits into its national culture, a project which underpins China's more assertive international presence. Rana Mitter is the director of the University China Centre and professor of the history and politics of modern China at the University of Oxford. His new book is called China's Good War, How World War II is Shaping a New Nationalism. Rana, welcome to Between the Lines. Tom, it's a real pleasure to be on the program. Now, the story of China's involvement in World War II, it's not very well known in the West. I think most people couldn't even give a decent outline of China's role or how many Chinese died even. Please do provide a, a brief overview. Absolutely. And you're right to say that I think it's fair that the China theatre is probably the single least well understood theatre of World War II of all of the major areas of combat. So very briefly, it's just worth thinking about a few quick statistics on, on what happened. The war itself was the longest theatre of war. The war broke out in 1937 and went all the way till 1945, of course. During that time, more than 10 million Chinese military and civilian were killed during the course of the war, both in combat, but also through disease, disasters and oh. all the other things that came with the war. And almost more than that, you might say, something like 80 to 100 million Chinese became refugees in their own country. So it was a really devastating event. But one fact that we should also bear in mind, and this is something that I think Westerners really should remember, during the height of that war, all the way till Pearl Harbor at the end of 1941, Chinese resistance, Chinese troops were holding down over half a million Japanese troops who otherwise could have been redeployed, you know, to fight the Soviet Union, to invade British India, to head into Southeast Asia. So when we think about the whole complete arena of World War II in Asia, that Chinese resistance to the Japanese over more than four and a half years alone before actually the Western allies came in is a really important episode of the war and we ought to know more about it. Well, indeed. And you argue that, at least until recently, China's national self-image was primarily shaped during the Cold War. How did China see itself in the Mao Zedong years? Well, one of the reasons that we know less than we might do about China's role in World War II is that actually, ironically, the government of Chairman Mao, Mao Zedong, during those Cold War years, actually rather limited, heavily limited discussion of what had happened in World War II. So they did talk about their own contribution, the guerrilla warfare for which the communists became pretty famous, uh, not just in China, but around the world. But they didn't talk about the one historically embarrassing fact that it was actually their old opponents, the nationalist government, or Kuomintang, as they were known in Chinese, of Chiang Kai-shek that actually did the vast majority of the battlefield fighting in places like Shanghai, cities like Changsha, Zhengzhou. These were actually places where the communists really didn't have much of a role. So it wasn't until the 1980s and the, the, the kind of thawing of the Cold War that the communist government in China was willing to talk about other people, nationalists, huh. Americans, British, and others who had contributed to the Allied victory as well. Well, that is fascinating. So the main battles you're saying are fought essentially by the nationalists who, of course, when they lost the civil war, they fled to Formosa, which is known as Taiwan these days. Um, Rana, does this mean that the nationalists and Chiang Kai-shek, have they been rescued from the dustbin of Chinese history? How have they been rehabilitated? So one of the most astonishing historical changes in China in the last uh, certainly uh, 30 years or so, and I'd say even more so actually within just the last few years, is the rehabilitation of the old enemies of Chairman Mao, the Chinese nationalists under Chiang Kai-shek. So we have to remember these are the guys who 
Mao defeated in that epic civil war between the two sides, between 1946 and, and 1949, and having been exiled to Taiwan, they were pretty much seen as the devil incarnate waiting offshore to reinvade China. So there had to be essentially a very significant change in the way that China thought about itself, which began in the 1980s and 1990s, in which actually, in many ways, China was very disillusioned with the political disaster of the Cultural Revolution of the 60s and 70s, when China had essentially gone to war with itself. And they were looking for a new, different sort of patriotic narrative that could bring everyone together, whether they'd been communists, anti-communists, nationalists, whatever it might be. And World War II really fitted the bill. So in doing that, they actually, without ever stating that they were openly doing this, decided to rehabilitate many of those battles, many of those um, events that had taken place between 1937 and 45, where not the communists, but their nationalist opponents had actually been in charge of the fighting. And this meant that for the first time, a much more broad, actually much more objective view of China's World War II history began to appear in China. And to this day, that broader a broader interpretation of the wartime history, bringing in all of the parties who fought, as well as those who actually supported the Japanese, is now much more discussed in China. It's not just a story about the communists. Yes, but where does Taiwan fit into this renewed celebration of China's role in World War II? Taiwan fits into a really interesting place. Essentially, it varies depending on who's in power in Taiwan. So although Taiwan, of course, is uh, always claimed by the mainland as an integral part of their territory, which they want to get back, when the pro-nationalist um, Kuomintang are actually in power, which most recently was about five years ago, actually relations with the Chinese mainland have become quite warm. And actually, I know from my own experience of being in the summer of 2015, the 70th anniversary of, of the end of World War II, in Taipei, that plenty of scholars and even the odd official from the mainland went over to basically join in with the Taiwanese commemoration of that shared experience of World War II, which they commemorate. But the current ruling party in Taiwan, the Democratic People's Party, DPP, is much more in favor of an autonomous or even independent mm -hmm, Taiwan. Mm -hmm. they, don't, they don't really share that idea that the shared history of World War II is part of theirs. Not least there's a little historical, historical piece of embarrassment from that point of view, which is that many Taiwanese during the wartime period were, of course, colonial citizens of Japan, and they actually fought in the war, not on the Chinese side, but the Japanese side. This is Between the Lines on ABC Radio National, helping you make sense of Australia's place in the world. My guest is Oxford historian Rana Mitter. He's the author of a new book. It's called China's Good War, How World War II is Shaping a New Nationalism. Uh, now, according to China's revised interpretation of modern history, Rana, uh, World War II didn't get started in Asia when Japan struck Pearl Harbor. This would have been 1941. It started much earlier, either with the Manchurian crisis in the early 30s, or at least at the start of the Sino-Japanese War in 1937. Why is pushing back the start date so important? If you want to sort of summarise why this topic of World War II is so important in China today, it's because actually the war has never really been history in China. It's always been current affairs, and it always links to the way in which China thinks about itself in its own backyard. So at the most simple level, you could say that the dating of the war 
if it's extended, if you start from the invasion of Manchuria by the Japanese in 1931, then you can actually argue that World War II and Japan's war against China lasted not just for eight years, from 1937 when it broke out on the mainland until uh, 1945, but actually for 14 years. Mm. And that's a very powerful, very powerful rhetorical weapon, Tom, in which you can basically say, look how hard we suffered. We, the Chinese, fought harder and longer and suffered more than any other allied power in World War II. And if you're making the argument which China is today, that not just the Americans, but the Chinese should also be able to have a big say in the shaping of modern Asia, because they fought and bled and sacrificed and died during that Second World War experience, then saying you fought a longer war than anyone else is part of that rhetorical um, strategy. Such an important subject. I bet your bottom dollar, a lot of young people don't even know that China, like France, by the way, was an occupied power during the war. Question here is, how does this new revised history deal with Japanese occupation? Tell us more about that. It's an incredibly sensitive subject, Tom, but a really interesting one. And in previous books, including as was this one, I've done a little bit to talk about how that topic of collaboration, a bit like Vichy France, for those who know European history, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. operates. The, the, very, the very short answer is that it's really talked about very little as a sort of horrible, embarrassing part of history. But what we're coming to see is that occasionally people, I'll give you one example, one of China's best known TV interview uh, hosts, a uh, man in China who's uh, perhaps almost as famous as you are in Australia, Tom, who uh, called Sui Yongyue. <laughs> And he basically actually wrote publicly that he could sort of see the point of people like the uh, nationalist uh, leader who went over to the Japanese, a man called Wang Jingwei. And he said that, you know, sometimes you have to understand that when people don't know what's going to happen in history, Japan's invaded. Nobody's coming to help China. The years, let's say 1938, it looks like China's going to be defeated. Maybe someone needed to go and have those negotiations with Japan to try and bring about at least some sort of peace to stop the bombs falling. Now, today, after you know, 1945, we know that the war was won by the Allies. And of course, that looks like a, a treacherous and very mistaken move. But there are a few voices out there in China who say, let's look at it from the point of view of those who had to make the decision at the time, rather than in retrospect. So still a highly controversial subject. Subject, but one on which there's a small, limited amount of debate even now going on in China. Let's bring this to the present. Here in Australia, as I'm sure you're well aware, we've been on the receiving end of this new wolf warrior diplomacy, which basically describes the very strident and bellicose statements recently made by uh, Chinese diplomats. Now, I know you have uh, some time for the John Mearsheimer thesis. He's a past guest on this program. So to Graham Allison, that China is a revisionist power seeking regional dominance and global reach. Question, do you see that as the logical extension of China's new nationalism, this new wolf warrior diplomacy? Actually, I don't entirely, Tom. Although the wolf warrior diplomacy, this very kind of aggressive language that's being used to countries like Australia, towards the UK actually recently as well, Indeed. and certainly the United States, is something that we're seeing quite a lot of. I think it's worth understanding that the legacy of World War II, in China's own words, is something different and more cooperative if we can actually uh, track it down and basically put their own words to them. You'll see that people from Xi Jinping down, also Wang Yi, the, the foreign minister of China, have been going around the world saying that one of the biggest legacies of China's participation in World War II is that China was not just one of, but the first signatories to the United Nations Charter. And we have to remember, around that United Nations Charter back in 1945, there quickly came a Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which was co-written by Chinese, P.H. Zhang, uh, the international trade organizations that we know today. All of that is a product of World 
War II that the Chinese really want to uh, uh, keep, keep hold of. So I would say that actually when we talk back to China, we should remind them of their own commitments to the legacy of World War II being genuine cooperation in international government. In that world, world, world wolf warrior diplomacy does not fit in. It's aggressive, it's pointless, it doesn't help. Instead, let's remind the Chinese themselves about their pledge of cooperation, and that I think is the real lesson of China's participation. Yeah, but what does that mean about China's ability to compromise on issues like its claim over, say, the South China Sea or Hong Kong? Well, I think in those areas, we have to be very, very clear, if we're talking about the liberal world here, which Australia and the UK are certainly members, in making it clear that there are certain areas where we have absolutely the right to speak out. I mean, Hong Kong is one of those, the South China Sea is another. The reason being, and quite simply, one could put this to the Chinese, that China is now a global power, like the United States, and global powers have to act with global responsibility. They can't simply go out there and do what they want. And that's also a lesson of World War II. It's about taking responsibilities as well as simply claiming the credit for commemoration. We should always remember the Chinese contribution to World War II, and we do we do badly when we forget it. But we should also remember the lesson of that is that global powers have to be global cooperative powers. And that's just as important for China as it is for the US or any other country. Rana Mitter, he's a professor of the history and politics of modern China at the University of Oxford, and his new book is called China's Good War, How World War II is Shaping a New Nationalism. Well, that's it for another week of Between the Lines here on RN. I'm Tom Switzer. Hope you can tune in again next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.